Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, Parliament is back in session in the new North American Free Trade Agreement. Maybe the first serious test for the government in a minority parliament. MPs will be here to discuss party priorities and the appetite for cooperation. Containing the coronavirus, the government faces questions about screening as a first Canadian case of the virus is confirmed and the number of possible cases increases. Ontario MP Aaron O'Toole kicks off his second attempt to win the Conservative leadership, joining Peter McKay as one of the front runners. We'll hear what O'Toole is offering his party and I'll speak with Marilyn Gladu, who says she's the right one to lead the Conservatives. And we'll also drill down on the early days of the race with three Conservative insiders. And our panel of parliamentary journalists will be here to tell us what they're watching for as the new Parliament kicks into action. And that's where we'll begin tonight. MPs return to the House of Commons today after a six-week hiatus. And the next few weeks will give us a better indication of how the new minority parliament will operate and maybe how long it might last. The government has made ratifying the new NAFTA its number one priority, and it will need the support of at least one opposition party to win that confidence vote. The bill to approve the trade deal will be tabled on Wednesday. Today, the Deputy Prime Minister appealed to the opposition parties to pass the bill quickly, and Christian Freeland is making it clear the government isn't open to amendments. We will be listening very hard, very carefully, to the, to the positions that opposition members of Parliament take when it comes to this agreement and to their arguments. We will work very hard and very diligently to provide them with all the information we can. I do want to say that we will also make the case, as I have begun to do today, that not only is it in the Canadian national interest to ratify this accord, this deal, and for this deal to enter into force, it is in our national interest for this agreement to be ratified without undue delay. Well, that's the view from the government on the trade deal. The Bloc Québécois leader said today if there are no special measures taken to support Quebec farmers and aluminum workers for the losses the Bloc says they're going to suffer in the new trade deal, the Bloc Québécois will vote against it. It will take some more protection for Quebec aluminum, which does not have the protection which has been offered to uh, uh, steel. Uh, this is the main condition, but we are working on some positive ways to fix the problem, to get some protection in order, in, within what is uh, already written, in order to be able to go forward with this free trade agreement, because Bloc Québécois is in favor of free trade. However, we want it to be made uh, in a fair way for uh, Quebec workers. So how quickly are opposition parties going to pass the new NAFTA? And what's the point of debate if the government isn't prepared to consider amendments to the deal? 
Let's pick up on that with three members of Parliament to discuss the latest developments. From the foyer of the House of Commons tonight, I'm joined by Greg Fergus. He's the Parliamentary Secretary to the President of the Treasury Board. John Nader is the Deputy House Leader for the Official Opposition Conservatives. And Jenny Kwan is the Immigration Critic for the NDP. Good to see you all. Uh, thanks for being here to talk about this important process and where we are in that process. Mr. Fergus, uh, let me start with you. The government introduced the Ways and Means motion today to kickstart that ratification process on Wednesday this week, we think, with debate and then perhaps committee hearings in the House and Senate. What is the government's timetable for trying to ratify this new trade deal? Well, the government's timetable is going to be Parliament's timetable. We would encourage all parties to uh, get behind the deal and to, to support it, but of course we want to let Parliament have its say. Um, I think it's in the economic interest of all Canadians, to, for millions of Canadians who depend on trade, uh, to depend on uh, open access to the United States. And this has been a really great deal. This is a great deal for our steel and aluminum producers. This is a real great deal for ensuring that we have a dispute resolution mechanism uh, that is strong. And especially. But when you, say, when you say Parliament's timetable, you, the government must have a, a, a notion here of, of what's reasonable to the government and what's not. Are we talking. Uh, are we talking a matter of weeks here? Or are we talking several months before this well, could get ratified? Well, given that this was an all-of-Canada effort in which we had as a part of our consultative committee uh, uh, people who are strongly associated with uh, other political parties to be a part of it, to be sort of that touchstone to making sure that we were on the right track in terms of the negotiations and seeing the, how they have all support, come to support this deal, we're hoping that this could translate in a, in a quick passage. The United States, Mexico have already passed sure. this deal. It's been on the agenda and, and we were waiting for it uh, to, to get past those, uh, those, uh, those uh, uh, I want to say those, uh, I forget the word for it, uh, but le those legis Legislative hurdles. <laughs> the uh, legislative uh, hurdles, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Uh, and now that we're past that, we're hoping that there could be a, a, a good passage. Well, but of course, we are in a minority parliament. So. It's going to be up to Parliament for all of us to collaborate together to get this deal okay, passed. Okay, Mr. Nader, the Deputy Prime Minister rhymed off the long list of supporters of this trade deal today who want it passed quickly, including Conservative Premiers. Mm -hmm. So how will Conservatives in the House of Commons respond to Christian Freeland's request that you move this thing along quickly, ratify the deal fast? So obviously, you know, conservative parties support trade deals. Uh, obviously, you know, we're not going to rush into this without a little more information. Uh, but we're also not going to play political games with this either. So, you know, there are certain stakeholders out there who have been uh, uh, very vocal in their uh, support of it, and we, we've certainly heard from them on a regular basis. There are some other industries that have some concerns. We want to hear from them as well and make sure that we have the uh, economic impact that it'll have on those uh, industries, including the aluminum industry, uh, certainly some of the supply-managed commodities. So the does, that, does, that, does that mean to you a process, a, a standard legislative process, of committee hearings both in the House and you're not responsible for the Senate but you, do you want hearings on this you want to be able to you know, I, I think we're, we're going to see this go to the committee at some point. You know, I, again, we're conservatives. We don't want to see this um, held up uh, unnecessarily, but we do want to give at least the opportunity for some of the key industries to, to have their say. You know, I don't think we uh, we need to uh, see this drawn out, uh, uh, you know, far beyond uh, what, what needs to be done. You know, I well, think well, there's well, opportunity well, that's for That's what I'm us trying to do. Is trying to, so maybe you can help me. So in terms of a timetable, like, you know, what, what are you thinking? End of February, end of March, early April? What's your... You know, I, I think a lot of that will, will uh, rely on what the government comes forward with uh, additional information. We've asked for specific information on some of the economic impacts. If we're able to get that in a, in a timely fashion, I think we can move this along, uh, you know, fairly expeditiously. You but know? to be clear, at the end of the day, your party's going to support this trade deal, right? You know, I, we're still going to wait to see, the, you know, the final legislation. We had the Ways and Means motion today. Uh, you know, we're currently reviewing that. We'll see the legislation probably tabled on uh, Wednesday. You know, we'll take the time to review that. But, you know, again, we're the party of free trade. 
trade, you know, and we're going to be, uh, you know, sticking okay. with that uh, going forward. Jenny Kwan, what does the NDP want from this process? And d does the party know now, I know that you were waiting to get more details, does the party know now whether you'll support this, this deal as it is or not? Well, what we would like to do is to make sure that uh, we first see the legislation. Uh, there has to be a uh, open and transparent uh, process with respect to that. Uh, it will go to Parliament, so we, I hope that we will have the opportunity for a fulsome debate uh, on the matter. We know that, for example, with the deal, prior to this time, the Liberal government had said there's no more changes. This is the best deal that Canada could get. Uh, however, uh, the, the Democrats in the United States actually made changes to this deal, uh, deals that uh, sorry, changes that we've been wanting to see, for but example, now, they, the elimination of Chapter you, 11 yeah. as an example, right? The Liberal government prior to this time saying that there's no changes that could be had. Democrats in the United States pushed for that and, and that came forward. And so, But it sounds like Christian Freeland is saying today that you know, the time for any amendments has passed. There won't, the government won't entertain amendments on this. Uh, they want the legislation done. It's been approved in Mexico and the United States. And if Presumably, if, it, if we try to amend it here, that reopens it for them, too. Well, actually, the government's been saying that there can be no amendments right from the beginning, and the Democrats has actually pushed it and brought forward amendments. What I'm saying is this. Canadians deserve to have uh, this deal to be out in the open, to have transparency with respect to the deal uh, and the information around it, and for us to have fulsome debate around it. Uh, those, some of those changes are changes that uh, we wanted to see. Those were the changes that New Democrats wanted to see, uh, and accepting that it was bought for it by the United States uh, politicians. That said, there are still other areas to which there are concerns. So, so, so for example, the, so the dairy the NDP... industry, we need to be looking into that as well because supply management has a huge impact uh, in our dairy uh, industry. Is it right that the Canadians and, and through the Canadian government should be subsidizing them because uh, they are uh, losing out on this uh, trade deal? So Is that this... the right approach to go forward with? Right. So you have, you have the opportunity here to, and I, I'm not sure, so... You're saying that the NDP hasn't decided yet whether it'll vote for this deal or against it. I mean, everything I'm hearing, it suggests you'll vote against it. Uh, and if that's, but I suppose that's okay because Mr. Nader's already said the Tories are going to support it. Well, we're going to look at the legislation, uh, and uh, I won't be able to tell you whether or not we support this legislation until we actually see it. Uh, that would be the prudent thing to do, okay. uh, and see the information, and then we can go forward with that. Mr. Fergus, to be clear, the government is not uh, going to amend. Uh, going to entertain amendments to this trade deal, right? Is it, it's too late for that? I think realistically speaking, it's already passed through and you know how difficult it is to get it through the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It has now passed through there. It's a good deal. It was uh, made slightly better and we are really enthusiastic and I'm glad to hear from the NDP that they found that these changes were changes that they were looking for. So we think that we have a really good deal and it's so important to millions of Canadians. I'm pretty confident that Parliament is going to be passing this bill. The Blockley Leader said today, Mr. Fergus, his party will oppose the trade deal unless there's compensation uh, or protections for Quebec farmers and aluminum workers. Is the government open to providing protection and compensation after the deal's ratified? Is that something to be talked about? I think when you take a look at the aluminum workers, I, I ha have to say, uh, if you speak to people in the aluminum industry, they're saying this is the best deal uh, ever. Now, where they have a little point of contention is that they took a look at this deal, which provides for 70% of steel and aluminum to be sourced 
from North American sources. Right. The United States doesn't have a, uh, a real aluminum uh, industry, neither does Mexico. It's really Canada. So Canada is getting a great deal. Uh, on this, it's sort of, it's sort of a, you're saying it's a better deal almost by default. Since well, we, we have the industry. Okay, it's, it's better than zero protection that was in the original NAFTA. Mr. Mr. Nader, the the uh, Deputy Prime Minister also said today that uh, the only uncertainty around NAFTA now, and there's been lots of it over the last few years, is in the hands of Canadians. In other words, the hands of the opposition parties. What responsibility do you believe do you have? Uh, does your party have to end that uncertainty? Do you agree with her that it's time to move this now? I mean, obviously, the time now is to debate this and and to. Uh, Bring forward the legislation. So, you know, the Parliament's going to be dealing with this, and, you know, provided that uh, we, as the official opposition, are provided with, uh, you know, significant information that we've been looking for, you know, we're willing to work with the uh, government and, and all parties to see this move forward. You know, I'd say it was interesting in the United States, you know, against the backdrop of impeachment inquiries, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, the Republican White House actually, you know, were. Quite, a, quite involved in the negotiation process. I'd say from a Canadian standpoint, we as the Conservatives were not uh, brought into the loop uh, nearly as early in the process, and we got our briefing after the, sign, the deal was signed. So, you know, we would prefer to have been at the table and have uh, been in the consultations, much like the Democrats were with the Republican White House. All right, a final question, a final comment from you, uh, Jenny Kwan, on this idea that maybe the deal gets ratified and it can be, if there are areas that feel left out or that feel uh, they've suffered, uh, then there can be the conversation the Bloc is talking about. Uh, compensating or uh, providing protections after the fact. Does that make sense to you? Well, I think there's a real question too that when we sign these deals, um, why is it that we're resulting in a situation where industries are going to lose out, such as our dairy industry as an example, uh, and then the government would have to compensate for it? Wouldn't it be better if we actually negotiated a deal that actually supports our dairy industry right from the get-go? Right. Uh, so now I understand the government saying that there can be no amendments, but it does raise this key question in terms of the process, though, and that is before we get to this stage, doesn't Canadians deserve to have all the information before them so that they can assess on whether or not this is a good deal for Canada. None of that process allow for that. This is in the final stage when everything is said and done and the government says there's nothing that we can do to change this, but it's a good deal, trust us, right? So this is the wrong way to proceed. I certainly hope that the government in going forward uh, for this deal and other deals uh, as well, that we allow for an open and transparent process so that Canadians have access okay. to the information and questions answered before we get to this stage. All right. Uh, Jenny Kwan, Greg Fergus, John Nader, thank you all for your time tonight, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Well, now let's shift our attention to the race for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. As expected, Ontario MP Aaron O'Toole today announced his second run at the leadership, and he did it in a short video. Here it is. Who's going to fight for auto workers who just saw the last car roll off the line? Who's going to fight for forestry workers who just watched another mill close? Who's going to stand up for those who wear a uniform of service to protect us at home and abroad? Who's going to defend our history, our institutions against attacks from cancel culture and the radical left? The stakes are high for Canada. The country needs a strong Conservative Party. We need strong leadership to unite our party, take the hyphen out of being a Conservative, and ensure we grow our movement to win. We need to show more urban and suburban Canadians that their values of liberty, family and equality are at the core of our party. It's time Canadians had a government that fights for their needs instead of fighting for attention from global celebrities and corrupt corporate insiders. I'm Aaron O'Toole and I'm running to unite Conservatives on the path to victory.
I'm not a career politician. I'm not a product of the Ottawa bubble. I spent 10 years in the private sector, and 12 years in our military, where you're judged by who you are and the work you do, not where you came from or who you know. I'm asking for your support to take on and beat Justin Trudeau. I'm in politics to fight for you. And I need you to fight alongside me for Canada. Well, what stands out in Aaron O'Toole's message? A promise to unite the party and pointing out that he's not a career politician or a product of the Ottawa bubble. Perhaps a, a thinly veiled jab at uh, one of the other men in the race, Peter McKay, who also announced his candidacy on the weekend. McKay, too, focused on the need to unite the party. Here's part of what he had to say. We've all lived through the realities of what can happen when Conservatives are not united. We know firsthand how important it is that we do our part not to divide ourselves, our party, or our nation. If divided, we falter, we fail. And I've done my part, and I've played my part in uniting the Conservative family into one big blue tent. And it's... For all Conservatives, all Canadians belong in a party where they have a voice and a place at the table. Our strength comes from our shared values, and victory will only come if we work as one. Well, so far there are nearly a dozen candidates who said they intend to run for the leadership of the party. Several others are said to be thinking seriously about it, and that includes Conservative MPs Michelle Rampel-Garner and Candace Bergen. But so far the only woman candidate for the Conservative leadership is Ontario MP Marilyn Gladu, the MP for Sarnia-Lampton, is a chemical engineer by profession. She joins me in our studio now. Good to see you. Good to see you. Peter. Thanks for being here. Uh, why do you think you're the best person to lead the Conservative Party? Well, Peter, in order to win the next election, we need a few things. First of all, we have to expand the base. And for that, we need a strong, dynamic leader, somebody that will be appealing to other Canadians, and I think I'm that person. And we also need a better balance in our policy of fiscal responsibility and social compassion. I think Canadians love, uh, you know, what Conservatives do in terms of lowering taxes and creating jobs, growing the economy. But they're also looking increasingly for people who are going to help our ailing healthcare system, uh, come with a credible climate change plan, and have some compassion on Canadians that are in difficulty. Seniors that can't afford their bills, people that can't pay for their prescription medications, veterans that are homeless, and, you know, people trapped in the affordable housing crisis. So far, you're, you're getting a better idea today of, of who your opponents will be. Uh, you know, Peter McKay declared on the weekend, Aaron O'Toole launched his campaign uh, with a video today. Um, let's start with Peter McKay. What do you think of Peter McKay as a potential leader? What's the difference between you and him? Well, I think, uh, you know, Peter is a fine gentleman. I I have met him a number of years ago and, of course, watched him. I think the question is, can Peter expand the base or is it the same old, same old that we're going to get in the Conservative Party? That's really the question. I've not seen what he's going to run on yet, but I'll be interested as uh, we go forward. Certainly, he's experienced in Parliament and experienced uh, in the real world. This is really important. I've got 32 years of global business experience as well as parliamentary experience, and I think both of those things are needed because we're in a minority government, so we don't have the luxury of waiting while someone gets trained up on parliamentary procedure. We need to hit the ground running. So, so do you think the time he's, the previous time he's spent in politics is an advantage for him or is it baggage of, as some might suggest? Uh, for him it's both because he does have experience but there were also um, you know, topics of the day and people will remember that. 
Uh, what about Aaron O'Toole? He, he's in the race today, painting himself as the defender of resource jobs, uh, talking about also the need to unify the party, but also uh, suggesting that he's not a political lifer and that maybe uh, maybe a bit of a shot at, P at Peter McKay. What what's do you think is the difference if people are starting to consider those choices between you and Aaron O'Toole? Well, I think when it comes to uh, protecting the natural resource sector, especially the energy sector, I've got 32 years of experience in the petrochemical industry. I think I spent a lot of hours in Alberta and working in that industry, and I understand that industry, mining, nuclear, the bio and renewables industry, and that's experience that I think will help uh, repair the damage that's been done to their economy by the Liberals. In terms of uh, having the balance, as I said, that's important. Aaron is certainly a fine individual and uh, I look forward to seeing what the membership thinks. All right, but why would you be a better leader than Aaron? Uh, well, to be honest, I think that uh, I can reach out beyond to more Canadians. I uh, was a youth leader for about 35 years. Young people like me and I like them. And I think that Aaron may have that sort of old military white guy look about him that may not be as appealing to the younger generation who are becoming the largest voting demographic. Right. Um, okay, uh, let's talk about some of the issues. Do you, uh, I mean, as a chemical engineer, you talked about it, you've, you've worked in the petroleum industry. Where do you stand on a carbon tax? Well, a carbon tax is not a very effective way to get a reduction. You know, BC's had one for 10 years and they've only reduced by 1%. Europe has had one for 19 years and they've only gone down 8%. Uh, clearly, we're not going to meet our Paris targets with that. So I would prefer a mechanism that addresses the top emitters in the country. And I'd be looking to put in an incentive regulatory scheme for major industrial emitters and in the transportation sector to address uh, diesel emissions in trucks, increase the amount of rail in the country uh, and in buildings I think we can green the buildings up but also there's uh, a number of solutions that will be important um, especially in the north. What's the difference between what you would offer as a climate change plan and what Andrew Shear was offering? Um, actually, my plan will be credible because I'll be able to show Canadians His with a wasn't. graph. Uh, well, you know, the themes were good, but the way that it rolled out, it, it turned into a lot of bureaucratic programs, a green standard, a green innovation fund, things that the Canadian public said, well, how is that going to actually achieve the target? How much are you going to get in reduction from this initiative? How much from that initiative? Where's the chart that shows we'll meet the Paris targets? And where's the chart that shows how we're going to leverage that in the world to help solve this global problem? Are you still committed to meeting Paris targets? Absolutely. And I think we need to do more, though. I mean, we're, Canada is less than 1.6% of the entire footprint. We could eliminate the whole thing, and it's not going to solve the problem. So we have to take a leadership role here at home, but we have to leverage our technology and our resources to the people that are the substantive contributors. So w would you be, ag you know, uh, I mean, the last Conservative campaign, uh, you know, the anti-carbon tax uh, rhetoric was front and center in that campaign. Uh, do you feel the same way that, that Andrew Shear felt about a carbon tax and how we have to stop it at all cost, or is it uh, does it have a place? Well, uh, the provinces have carbon taxes in places in, in several of our provinces, and they have jurisdiction to do that. And we have to see that. But you've said they don't work, so no, they don't work. But two thirds of the people that got elected to parliament came from a party that was, you know, in favor of a carbon tax. So while I would say it's punishing on the poor, and we really have to address that and put the um, incentive where you want to get the emissions reduction. How would you deal with the voices in the party that uh, want to reopen the abortion debate? And we're hearing from some of them, one, one candidate, prominent, well, not prominent candidate, but uh, has made prominent uh, remarks, uh, Mr. DeCarey. Uh, what about 
those in the party who want to reopen the abortion debate and, and may want to reopen the same-sex marriage debate. What's your view on that? Well, the party's view is clear that we're not going to reopen the abortion debate. Um, within that, I would say we're a big tent party. We have the full range of uh, you know, pro-life to pro-choice people. Um, the party will not bring anything forward. I believe in uh, protecting people's rights and freedoms. So the rights of conscience for people to vote how they want to vote, for example, and I'll continue to do that. Okay, uh, but if it's a if it's at odds with party policy, why wouldn't a leader just say this is not this is at odds with party policy? I'm not letting you bring it forward. There'll be consequences if you do. Well, uh, you know that is a position that I've heard, and I'm listening to the feedback that I'm hearing from people within the party at this time. Um, but at this point, I, I think in the interests of democracy, uh, members are duly elected, and they're supposed to be able to bring whatever they want in terms of private members' business. And I think um, you know we need to allow due process. We we don't have a majority of pro-life uh, people in this Conservative Party. So I think, you know, while they have the freedom to bring their view, it would never pass. Right, but you, you, you could have, you would have the power, one would think, as a leader to say, uh, you know, pr yes, private members, uh, backbench MPs are allowed mm -hmm. to bring forward legislation on all kinds of things or motions on all kinds of things. But you could say, as a leader, uh, you're not going to bring forward a motion uh, as a member of this caucus that's at odds with party policy. Right. So and I it's think not those, on. Those discussions will happen, but uh, you know, as a leader, I don't think squashing people's rights is necessarily um, a good leadership tactic. Okay. Um, so I'm trying to get, so there's two things at play here. One mm -hmm. is the leadership of the party, and then, of course, if you win, you would love, uh, you would want to then go on and become the Prime Minister of Canada and win Indeed. the next election. But we know in the last election campaign that issues around those, you know, problems are in, in communicating the leader's position or uh, ambiguity, lack of clarity. Mm -hmm. uh, but do you share the same position as Andrew Scheer then? That, no, as a I, government, we wouldn't bring it forward, but I, members can? Uh, as That's a government, saying, we won't bring it forward. At this point, uh, you know, I'm open to working with the members to make sure that their rights are protected. I think um, we will have more discussion this November at the party convention, and I think, uh, you know, that will inform the, the path forward. Okay, um, but to get clarity on that, so is, is, you, I'm not going to bring it forward at all. Right, but but isn't wasn't that the position of Andrew Scheer in the last election? And how much do you think that hurt the Conservatives in that campaign to have this position that says we won't bring it forward as a government, but it's not dead within the party? You know, I think that uh, people just had difficulty um, believing Andrew because he always seemed quite nervous when he talked about the topic. And I'm not nervous about this topic. I'm a woman. I think that 77% of Canadians want abortion services available, and the role is to represent Canadians. Okay. And do you have any concerns at all when Lisa Raitt of the Leadership Election Committee says that each candidate will be scrutinized to ensure their views uh, align with party policy? Do you think what you're saying today aligns with party policy? Absolutely. I am fully on board with the party policy. We're not reopening the abortion debate. And it's a checkbox on the leadership forum, which I just submitted today. Okay. Uh, how's your French? Je parle très bien le français. So you... Um, I worked in Quebec for about 15 years with Dow Chemical and Worley Parsons, uh, traveling back and forth. And so uh, between that and arriving here on the hill and having a, a French teacher to teach me all the parliamentary jargon, um, I feel very comfortable to do interviews in French and also uh, to debate. How important should it be? Because you've, you probably saw on the weekend yeah. that some of the Quebec media were savaging Peter McKay's French uh, in his campaign announcement. Uh, I think it's really important to speak both official languages of the country, to be able to understand the people of Quebec and have them understand and you. Marilyn Gladden, uh, candidate, declared candidate for the Conservative Party leadership. Uh, always good to talk to you. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Peter.
In a moment, I'll speak with three Conservative insiders about the leadership race and what we are hearing so far from the declared candidates. But first, some information on the rules of the contest. In order to be considered a candidate for the Conservative Party's leadership, an individual must register by February 27th, paying a $25,000 registration fee and submitting 1,000 signatures from voters residing in at least 30 different electoral districts in at least seven different provinces or territories. To become a verified candidate, leadership hopefuls must submit another $175,000 in registration fees and an additional $100,000 compliance deposit by March 25th. That brings the total to $300,000 in order to run. Another 2,000 signatures are required by that date. The leadership election will be held on June 27th. Voters must be registered as Conservative Party members by April 17th to be eligible to vote. Well, as the race for the Conservative leadership starts to heat up, let's bring in three Conservative insiders for their views on the candidates, the issues and the challenges. With me in our studio is Kate Harrison, a Vice President at Summa Strategies, and joining us from Toronto are uh, Corporate Communications Consultant Sarah McIntyre, former Press Secretary for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper and former Director of Communications for former BC Premier Christy Clark, and Jason Leader is President of Enterprise Canada Strategic Communication. And I'll point out that none of my guests on our panel today are working for any of the candidates, uh, at least not to this point. And it's good to see you all. Um, to Kate, let me start with you. Let's cut right to the chase. Does Peter McKay have this thing wrapped up? Is it a slam dunk or does he face a legitimate and serious challenge from either Aaron O'Toole or uh, Marilyn Gladick? He faces a challenge. I'm not sure where exactly it's going to come from, but I do think that there is a uh, sense that this should not be a coronation of, of Peter McKay. That's not necessarily casting judgment on his candidacy, uh, but there are a lot of Conservatives who think that this is a contest that should be a real competition, uh, and it shouldn't be one person's to, to walk away with. So I do think that uh, Mr. McKay is going to face uh, a, a challenge, even if it's not from one clear competitor right now, though there is still time for somebody to come in, uh, this notion that uh, he's the, the leader in waiting is something that he's going to have to kind of push back against uh, with his messaging and, and his tactics. Sarah, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'd agree. It's definitely Peter's to uh, to lose. Um, and, we, you know, it's not really good for a party if you have a coronation during a leadership contest. You really want to expand your base, get people excited, get volunteers going, get better party lists. And if you have a coronation, it makes that a little bit more difficult. Um, you know, he had a great launch on Saturday. His speech was one of the best speeches I, I've seen. It was authentic and inspiring. Um, but where is that challenge going to come from? And, and, you know, what you see with Aaron O'Toole is almost that they're going after the same kind of voter coalition, which I don't think is necessarily the smartest move by Aaron. But uh, he'll try and get uh, some competition to Peter in, in Ontario and probably with, you know, areas that have uh, a lot of uh, armed forces and, and veterans. But I don't know really what his strategy is in trying to eke away some of that support from Peter. 
Uh, let me hear you on that, Jason. Does this sound like it's going to shape up as a battle between, you know, the, the, the red Tory and, the, and the, the blue, maybe dark blue Tory in Aaron O'Toole? <laughs> yeah, this is the, the irony or the, the weird thing here is I think a lot of us, when it looked like there was going to be a, a, a lot broader pe group of people running for this thing, I think a lot of us thought maybe um, they would both be fishing for the same uh, people in the same pond. I think both of them are really historically presented as, I think, red Tories for the most part in the, in the, in the, in the, in the party. And so now you've got Mr. O'Toole, number one, tacking west. He's launching out, out in Alberta today. And number two, he's, uh, he's, I think, tacking rightward. You know, I'm the blue Tory. He's the red Tory. There was some coded language in his, in his speech today, which I thought was, was quite interesting. So, you know, Pierre Poliev exits the stage. Somebody's got to fill that vacuum. Aaron O'Toole looks like he's going to be the guy that tries to fill that vacuum in order to, to, to present a challenge to Mr. McKay. I mean, what's the, Kate, pick up on that. What, what, what's the thinking there, do you think? I mean, as I look at this, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking if, if you want to, it's one thing to win the leadership, but then, of course, you want to, you, you want to win an election. You want to be the prime minister. I mean, who's he after? I mean, uh, when, you, when you, make, you have a message saying, I'm the true blue Tory, and I'm going to defend conservative principles and, and take on, uh, you know, the, uh, the extremist left and so on, I mean, isn't that audience already in the conservative tent? It is. I, I think there's a couple things going on there. So I, I see this in the message that, that Aaron put out today as a bit of an appeal uh, to conservatives who are kind of sick and tired of, you know, uh, Trudeau's pandering to, to celebrities and whatnot. Um, and, but more directly, uh, it's trying to take aim at, at Peter McKay's progressive conservative legacy. So uh, for better or for worse, there's, uh, I would argue for worse, but there is a contingent within the party that is always going to come back to this idea uh, that Peter McKay is from the PC side of the tent. He can't mm -hmm. be trusted to be uh, a real conservative or whatever that means. Clearly, there's a, a sentiment there that Aaron O'Toole is trying to tap into. So uh, there's baby steps here. You do have to run a little bit more to the right in a leadership race than you may offer mm. up in a general. Sarah, does that, is that a message that, that, that grows the base? Because I mean, Marilyn Gladue talked about that today, saying she believes she's the only one who can grow the base in the Conservative Party, uh, particularly among young people. I think at one point she described Aaron O'Toole as an old white army guy in the, in the, in the interview. <laughs> well, I, I had with her, well, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. But I mean, what about the Aaron O'Toole message and, and does that actually, does that grow the party or just consolidate what's already there? Well, I think where he's trying to pivot to is that populist element of the party. And, you know, nobody in Ottawa is going to stick up for you, but I'm Aaron O'Toole and I'm going to come in and look after the little guy. And, and you could see that all through his uh, video launch. Who's going to do this for you? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do this? Well, I'm the only like, guy that can do that. Um, is it going to grow the base? Well, I mean, the only outside of the, the existing populist vote within the Conservative Party, the only one you would tack towards would be potentially those vote switchers from the NDP, those union guys that want to take on, you know, the uh, want to have that little guy voice there. So I don't think it's necessarily one that's going to grow the uh, coalition of the conservative uh, support base in a general election, but it may be one that he's going to use in order to get the leadership. Uh, Jason, Peter McKay is taking a lot of heat, particularly in Quebec today, for uh, his launch and his, his inability to, uh, to do better in, in the French language. Is this going to be a big problem? Well, I mean, conservative leaders doesn't speak great French. Is not that hasn't been a you know that hasn't been a breaking story. That's been a breaking story in plenty of different uh, <laughs> everything that I've been involved in in conservative politics. It's just the same old, same old. Listen, in a in a general election, this will be a problem uh, in Quebec. If you're hoping to win more than ten seats in Quebec, which is about how many we normally win in Quebec, yeah, for sure, this is a is a problem. I think Mr. McKay and his team probably aren't that happy about the headline and the phone lines burned up to the Journal de Montréal this morning. And I understand that they're probably upset 
upset about it, but in the, in the grand scheme of things, um, what I don't see is a candidate um, at this point that's going to appeal uh, in Quebec more than, uh, more, than, more than Mr. McKay, or I think it's a bit of a, a, bit of a crapshoot. So that's why big-time big endorsements, I think, in Quebec will matter more. I mean, Mr. Deltel, yeah. everybody's going to be watching to see what Mr. Deltel does. Everybody's going to be watching to see what prominent Quebec conservatives do. And I think, yeah, this is a bump. Uh, and, and the truth is, their French should all be better. Yeah. This isn't just Mr. a Mr. McKay problem. This is all of them. And I think uh, they're going to have to clean that up. And I think the Liberals are licking their chops for, for that French debate, for sure. But um, we're not going to win a majority government in Quebec unless we have a leader from Quebec. And uh, Mr. Charest has turned it down. So here we are. Yeah, OK. Let's let's talk a little. We, talk, we are continuing to talk about candidates, but let's talk a bit about the party members. Uh, Kate, you know what? One of the things, and Jason touched on it, Jean Charest is out. Ron Ambrose is out. Uh, and, and I think that's curious to some people because this is not a party that's uh, that collapsed in the last election, that was beaten to a pulp in the last election. A lot of people thought it should and could have won mm-hmm. the last election. So what are party members looking for? I think party member, it, it's always a toss-up. You talk to some people and they say, well, it's electability in a general. Uh, my experience with political leaderships is that it's often not that. It's often who is speaking to the immediate concerns uh, and preoccupations that members have today. Uh, and I think that uh, Sarah touched on something in terms of O'Toole's messaging, in terms of fighting for the little guy, more of that kind of populist element. You know, Peter McKay is Bay Street, Aaron O'Toole is blue mm-hmm. collar, or at least that's how he's trying to position it. I'm not sure that it's going to work, but I, I do think that uh, members are looking for strong communication skills uh, and somebody who is seen to be scrappy, seen to be a fighter and can take on Trudeau admirably. Uh, I would implore that members should be thinking also about the electability of that candidate in the general because it's all well and good to have a rabid partisan as as our leader, uh, but can they grow the base? Can they appeal to urban and suburban Canada? To me, that is the number one question that whoever the leader is going to be needs to answer. Right. So, Sarah, was the lesson from the last election that the Conservatives had a largely, uh, was it a policy problem or was it a leader problem? Well, I mean, I think we should be able to see that Baird report. I think it should be released to members to look at what those lessons learned are. But all in all, I mean, we should have won that election. So I, I don't think it was policy. Perhaps, I mean, it's recycled policies for 10 years. I mean, the party needs to, uh, I think, to Kate's point, kind of talk about what the immediate kind of concerns are for members today, not from 2006. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, Mr. Shear kind of rolled out the, the recycled platform from, from many elections past. But there was also a leader problem. Uh, you know, he was uh, completely shut out of Toronto. I and mean, we need to know why that was. Was it because he he didn't come across as uh, authentic when he was trying to answer questions about his citizenship, about his CV, about where he stands on social issues? So for me, uh, my assessment of the last election and, and where we fell down was really, it was our, our leader. Um, but, uh, you know, you're always looking to the, the leader, the great messiah to come and save the party and deliver a majority. I mean, that's what the, the liberals went through and, and how many leaders did they go through from a Canadian FTD on to uh, Trudeau before he actually delivered. So right. I, I think that what the, the members need to be thinking about when they're thinking about leaders is, is winnability. But, you know, I don't think we should um, forego conservatism and having a conservative P- prime minister in order to be electable. There's going to be a delicate balance to find in one person. Jason, the, like we're, we, the questions are being asked already, the, and uh, Kate uh, touched on them, so did uh, Sarah. I mean, this this whole idea that we're back with, we're going to have social issues being put to these leaders, uh, they are already, uh, where you are on same-sex marriage, where you are on a woman's right to choose. Uh, they featured prominently in the last election, possibly as a communication issue for the last leader. Um, what role are they going to play in this 
leadership campaign because, as we know, it is an internal party uh, matter, but everybody on the outside is watching, too, to see where the party is on these things. Yeah, I sure hope they pay, they play no part in this uh, in this leadership uh, campaign. And I, I've been involved in politics since the mid '90s, provincial and provincially and federally. And every single uh, election campaign, uh, you know, it's sort of brought out and wheeled out. And there's difficult questions asked of conservative leaders. And this kind of stuff, it's 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 hung around us for quite some time. And I think a number of us, I think leaders in the party, leaders, uh, you know, people who have run these campaigns, have decided over the last number of years we're not going to get involved in these debates anymore. We were unsuccessful last. Time, Mr. Shear, his own personal views. It's one thing to have your own personal views; it's another thing to not be able to explain them. That was mm-hmm. the big problem that Mr. Shear had in the in the last campaign is he couldn't explain himself. And so, from our side, I just I just won't support somebody, um, especially on the LGBTQ issues, who uh, isn't open, modern, and uh, and and willing to sort of say not only are gay people to be uh, to be tolerated, they're to be celebrated. And mm-hmm. so, I think that's a lot where a lot of leadership of our party is. I don't think we're going to get into this debate again. And uh, and I think if you're a if you're a if you're a leadership candidate who's looking to get uh, uh, the votes to required here, I think that's a non-starter right, going but, but into how, this campaign. But what's the right way to handle this? I mean, in my conversation with Marilyn Glad, who the, 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 she's prepared to uh, say, look, I don't want to, no conservative government I lead will ever reopen that debate. That was the Stephen Harper position. That's been the, the Andrew Scheer position. And yet, she leaves open the possibility that <coughs> private members will run and bring these issues forward. And so, it won't stay out of the limelight. It won't stay out of the spotlight yeah. if, if they want to do that. Are you, you saying we, are you saying there should be a leader that says, "Look, uh, here's the deal. If I win the party leadership, these issues won't come out of caucus. Uh, I won't let you raise them. It's, I'm shutting down that whole conversation. We've moved on. Is that on?" Yeah, well, listen, I, I, just to answer your question, I think, I'm sure there's other views here as well. I think that you know it's the only um, defensible position is to actually say. Private members, they're going to bring their stuff. I will whip the vote, and that will never ever get to the floor, and I will never ever um, um, support this kind of stuff. And I think, I think honestly, most Canadians understand. Like you know, Harper. I, I was told every single day Harper's going to reopen the woman's <laughs> right to choose. He's going to get rid of it. Yeah. Doug Ford, Jason Kenney, all this kind of stuff. It never happens, and I think most Canadians understand it. I think it's a construct that you know everybody likes to throw in our face. I think as long as you take that position, you defend it, and you look like you believe it and will enforce it, then I think that's the key. Sarah, what's yeah. your view on that? Yeah, and I also think the, you know, the candidate Dick Carrier that was out making these inflammatory, bigoted statements. I think you know, the party and the leadership election organizing committee has an opportunity to shut the book on this once and for all and not let him run as a, as a leader. And I think, you know, Canadians have moved on from these issues and not just moved on. They're, they're celebrating, as, as Jason says, not just tolerating, but celebrating LGBTQ uh, rights as well as uh, same-sex marriage. And I think if we are going to, as Peter uh, McKay said, uh, you know, get the stinking albatross across, uh, away from our necks, uh, that we need to have a leader that is very clear on these issues, that they are not going to reopen them, that perhaps if a private member brings forward an issue, they are going to whip the vote, that this is not going to be part of the Conservative Party going forward. All right, Kate? The challenge uh, around this question becomes a lot easier if there is a leader who personally believes with conviction and authenticity uh, their position on it. So I think... Uh, we don't want to and communicates, send, and, and communicates yeah. it clearly mm-hmm. in a way that people understand. So we don't want to send a message to social conservatives that they should go park their vote elsewhere. Uh, but at the same time, there needs to be an element of pragmatism here. Uh, and social conservatives that I speak with uh, are tired of their uh, political philosophy being, uh, you know, boiled down to those two issues alone. Mm-hmm. So uh, perhaps what we see in this in this debate, uh, what I hope we see, uh, is a is a thoughtful conversation on social conservative issues beyond those two. I think 
think social conservatives have a real challenge in trying to brand their part of the movement and their political philosophy beyond that. I'm already out of time, but I, I don't want to leave you without giving you 15 seconds each on this. I know that's a bit of a box to put you in, but mm -hmm. I, I don't think we can leave the conversation without talking about, uh, you know, a, a climate plan. And we know there was lots of conversation about that. What do you want to hear about the party's position on, on climate change and how it's going to deal with that in this campaign? Sarah, let me start with you. Yeah, well, I mean, I come from Sarnia, oil-producing town. My dad was a process operator, um, and yet, you know, we were a family that uh, had uh, organic re uh, recycling. I think it is a balance, and that's always been the conservative position. We need to grow the economy. We need to look after the environment, but not at the expense of the economy. And what are those specific policy platforms in, uh, in contrast to what the Liberals are doing? And let's make sure that we do something that is real and measurable and effective. Jason? I think you can deal with it. I agree. Uh, I think a modern party needs a plan here, a credible plan. Dealing with heavy industry and dealing with transportation, there's a couple, There's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there. That's where we should focus our attention and draw distinctions. I think everyone understands the Liberals don't really have a plan, but they keep talking about the fact that they do. I think if you if you focus on a couple of measurable things, Canadians will respond. Final word, do you? Yeah, agree. Don't penalize everyday people just trying to get to work and, and do their jobs with this. Uh, talk about the plan to transition the economy, uh, but also let's stop with the one-size-fits-all approach uh, to, to climate, climate pricing in Canada. We need to get feedback from municipalities and provinces. I see a lot of leadership candidates going in that direction. All right, Kate Harrison, Sarah McIntyre, Jason Leader. Uh, great conversation. Thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. The first case of a new strain of coronavirus has now been confirmed in Canada. And now there's word the patient's wife is also likely infected. The Ontario couple returned last week from China. Another 19 people in Ontario are being monitored for possible infection. Canada's health minister provided this update this afternoon and sought to reassure Canadians about the screening process and the risk to Canadians. And what I can tell you, though, is it is a sign that the information that we're providing and the collaboration that's happening across uh, all levels of government is working. In fact, the, uh, the first patient knew exactly what to do uh, should his uh, symptoms mirror the kinds of symptoms we were asking passengers to watch for. And of course, uh, his spouse was in self-isolation as directed by health officials after, after he was hospitalized. And so uh, this is, uh, for me, a very good sign that Ontario is uh, taking uh, all of the precautions that it needs to take to ensure uh, the limited spread of the disease. The Ontario health official said today two confirmed or presumptive confirmed, 16 ruled out, I think it was 19 that they're monitoring because of maybe travel history and symptoms. Do you have a global number for the country on how many cases are actively being monitored? I'm reluctant to give that number only because it changes from day to day, but what I will say is that the fact that there are cases that are being actively monitored is a good sign. It means that our public health officials, our, 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 our health officials at all levels of government, including the municipal level, are taking their responsibilities seriously, have the information that they need in order to act on, on potential cases, and are uh, taking appropriate measures to make sure that we do the tests to ensure that, that, that we understand what, what the spread of the disease is, is, is like in Canada. 
Well, there's lots to cover with the return of Parliament and our panel of uh, journalists. Uh, Susan Delacorte, a columnist with the Toronto Star, Joel Denis Belavos, the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for La Presse, and John Iveson, columnist for the National Post and Parliamentary Bureau Chief for Post Media. Uh, Susan, just hearing from uh, Patty Haidu uh, talking about uh, the government's measures to deal with the uh, coronavirus, the latest strain in the, the numbers of Canadians now identified uh, one carrier for sure, one confirmed case and uh, at least one other uh, uh, supposed case and a bunch of other people being tested. How do you think the government's been dealing with this? Well, I think it's been, it's been interesting. I don't want to say lucky because there are horrible incidents that uh, provoked it. One is a flu virus and the other was the plane crash. But it is interesting to see the government that was accused all last year of not really having its act together on crisis communications. They've been pretty on top of things. They're um, they're coming out all the time. They've got, um, it's now almost common to see a minister with a public servant, uh, which you didn't see so much of, I think, in past years. So um, it's, uh, I think, just in terms of keeping people informed um, and keeping the opposition informed, I take it, um, it's been the year is off to an interesting, I don't want to say, I guess a yeah. good start for them. Well, yeah. And these are often cases, right, where governments that can be under fire for all kinds of reasons yeah. uh, really get tested if there's a, an international crisis like the Ukraine, uh, the crash of the Ukraine plane in Iran, Joel Denis, or, or a coronavirus uh, outbreak, and they get a chance to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that's what this is. It's not about changing the channel, but the channel's been changed for, yeah, them, for them, and how do they deal with it? Yeah, I think they've, like uh, Susan just said, uh, They've been handling this uh, um, um, the Iran, uh, Ira Iranian airplane uh, disaster, but also this uh, the coronavirus uh, um, uh, crisis. If I may say very well, I would say because in terms of communications, they've been communicating very well. And as for the virus, I think the main goal of the uh, government is to avoid a panic, and that's you know sometimes information gets out of hand, can be amplified. The crisis may be uh, overplayed, and the role of this minister, I think uh, Paddy Adju has been to just, we, are, we have this under control, please do not panic, we will let you know if uh, the circumstances change, and we've seen that. Yeah, and it's often in a bit of a challenge, the you know, conservatives I think are asking for the, the speedy recall of the health committee yeah. to, to deal with this issue, and I mean, asking for increased screening measures. And What's the health committee going to do if the thing explodes? I mean, they, I think it's early days yet, um, but I remember the SARS crisis, which I was at Queen's Park at the time, and it was, uh, it came from nowhere and they were, the, the provincial government in particular was really ill-prepared. Um, you know, we've come a long way from then. Mm -hmm. And I think this, this government is doing quite well, keeping a, a lid on things right now. Um, you know, if you're going to be anywhere in the world, I think Canada's a, a good place to be if there's a pandemic because we have the, the, the resources for um, disease control. Uh, the, the the vaccines are being worked on. I think the the, the disease control centre in Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and if this thing does not go, you know, I hate to say we use the word viral, but I mean if it if it continues at this this continued level, the government seems to have it under control. The other interesting thing about this is that both of these cases have taken politics and some fraught relationships out of the. Canada mm -hmm. didn't have good relationships with uh, with Iran and has been forced to have some kind of relationship, in fact, build one through that uh, crisis. And now we've got China, which is, you know, in all kinds of ways, a problematic country for Canada right now, too. But the two countries have to deal with each other on a non-political, mm -hmm. non 
diplomatically tense basis. And uh, it, it, I guess it, it shows you what they can do when they want to do. Let me ask about uh, the NAFTA uh, process this week. It'll kick into high gear. The government's trying to get it ratified on a speedier timetable, Joel Denis. Uh, it, it seems to me from my reading that at the end of the day, uh, you know, I'm not sure how long the debate and process will take. The Conservatives will back this because uh, they're they, they want a free trade deal. Mm -hmm. They want to end the uncertainty. Uh, the Bloc probably won't uh, at this point unless they get these built-in. They want some guarantees from the government that after this thing's ratified, if it can't be amended, which it seems it can't, that uh, the government will have some compensation programs for farmers and aluminum workers in Quebec. Can he get that? Can Yves-Francois Blanchet get that? I don't think so. Why? Because the Quebec government is in favor of this deal despite the sort of, sort of uh, failings that I've described about the aluminum industry. So I think this deal is you know, going to be pushed through the House of Commons from the government. And from the government's perspective, they have the support of the, all the provinces all the uh, big cities. Conservative cons premiers. Conservative premiers, business people, unions. So there's almost a large, if not unanimity, there's a large consensus that this should be adopted as soon as possible. So the other part, the opposition parties may try to score some political gains, but at the end of the day, the uh, Trudeau government has the upper end on this file. And this is the first, I guess, example we're going to get, John, of uh, the, the dance partner scenario, right? The minority government. Right. Like, so the bloc doesn't vote for it. Too bad, so sad. The, the Conservatives yeah. are going to support it. Yeah. The NDP may or may not. Uh, you know, so I, mean, they, I think the NDP would, would be the biggest doubt, given Legault is in favor of it. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, every, remember back to the minority government under Harper, and everybody said, well, Harper will never find a dance partner. He found a, a dance partner on, on every issue. It wasn't always the same one, but I think that's what we're going to see. And I think this may be one of the only times that, that dance partner is the Conservative Party. You know, and, the, and the other measures we're going to see coming through, from gun control, for example. Um, there may be another, uh, another few. The, the, the cell phone bill cut, which uh, is a pretty... If this is a government that doesn't have a lot of money to spend. It's got $57 billion worth of uh, camp campaign commitments uh, that it made over four years. Um, not a lot of money to, to, to lavish on, the, on those promises, uh, particularly given the fact that the, the debt-to-GDP ratio of this year is going to go up. They always promised it was going to go down. So they're looking for things that are not going to be particularly expensive. And the commitment to reduce cell phone bills is one of the types of things that they could, uh, they could bring forward and probably get support from all parties on. Um, I would just point out, though, that Harper's uh, had a conversion rate of bills getting passed of about 78% in a majority parliament. When he was in minority, it was 48% and 44%. Mm. So yeah. I think the productivity of this parliament is going to be just about half speed. Mm. Susan, what do you think? <laughs> it's going to be, I, I think, I regard the NAFTA bill or NAFTA 2.0, whatever we're calling it, as a tone check. Um, because they've all been saying... We all have to talk more. We have to collaborate more. When I was asking conservatives last week, what do you want out of this? They said, we're not, we're not just going to give a rubber stamp to this right. thing. They have to talk to us. You know, and we want to be fully briefed. And so I think um, it's an occasion for the opposition parties to say to Trudeau, you want to talk to us? Talk to us. And, uh, you know, I, I, eventually, I think it will get passed, too. Yeah, is there any, but is there any doubt at the end of the day conservatives No, it was interesting to see Freeland in the House today reading the letter from Legault to Blanchet. Right. Mm. And, um, in other words, our friend is him, right? And, yeah, uh, and everybody knows how closely in, yeah. inter intertwine the bloc and, and the uh, the CAC are in Quebec. And if, if Francois Legault likes it, 
uh, the, the Yves-Francois Blanchette should like it too, should right? Should like it too. So it, it's, it's a way to put a wedge issue between, a wedge between the Bloc Québécois and François Legault. And on this file, I think uh, Monsieur Legault came out very strongly in favor of this deal, even before Christmas. So uh, Monsieur Blanchet knows where the Premier stands for, for a few weeks. Let's talk about the Conservative leadership race now. We got a little more clarity today of who's in. Aaron O'Toole's in, Peter McKay on the weekend. John, let me start with you on this. And um, people talk about the possibility of a, a McKay coronation. Does it feel that way? It's starting to feel a bit like that. I mean, I think that um, it was, it, well, it feels like that before anybody else gets into it. I mean, O'Toole's just come out an hour ago, so we haven't really heard him talk a lot. We, uh, the video was quite, quite good, actually. I thought the video they put out mm -hmm. after their launch in Calgary was, uh, was pretty slick, and it made the point that he's going to be the guy who's going to try and win in suburban and urban areas where, where they're not winning. He's going to be fighting for the rights of Canadian workers. He talked about the true blue Tory. It seemed true to me he's, he's Tory, setting yeah. up the true blue Tory versus the red Tory in, in Peter McKay. Is that, is that well, what we're going to see? I mean, I interviewed McKay yesterday and asked him, what, are you unabashedly centre-right? Well, he said, I don't like labels, red Tory, moderate. But certainly that's the tone of his campaign. He, he made um, comments about... Uh, same-sex marriage, which he voted against in 2005, but then voted not to reopen in 2006. And he says, I've evolved since then. Why do we want, want the government prying into the most uh, intimate parts of our lives uh, if we say we want smaller government? So that's kind of way, the way it's being set up right now. There may be other entrants, though. I mean, uh, yeah. Candace Bergen is talking about uh, taking a run as a woman from the West. Mm. Uh, clearly, though, I, and I think we're probably going to get onto that, the, the language issue is going to be a major issue. Well, Peter I come to that as well with Peter McKay. But so when you, when you look at, so let, let's assume for the moment we have O'Toole and McKay. I thought it was kind of interesting, Susan, in, in uh, Aaron O'Toole's video today, he talked about being the true blue Tory who's going to hold fast to conservative ideals and uh, take on uh, the leftists and, and, uh, and so on. I mean, it, I was, it seemed a bit of a curious message to me because it sounds like he's going after the people already in the party. How do you grow the... Is it a, is it <laughs> yeah. a message of growth? Yeah, it's an, it, you know, this has been much observed, but there are two different contests here, and um, uh, the, the winner has to win the Conservatives and the base, and then Canada. And it seems like Peter McKay's campaign is more about the one that is going to be fought in the, yeah, the election. Shooting for prime minister as right, opposed yeah, to... Right, uh, yeah, and Aaron O'Toole is talking to the base right now too, which would be a bit more powerful a message since I, I'm glad we're covering people who are actually running this week rather than not running. Starting to be a little bit of a pattern last week. So it's nice to see people actually in the race. Um, but I, I do think... I, um, Polyev's, the, the people that would have been with Polyev um, may find more of a home in an Aaron O'Toole mm. than a Peter McKay. How big is the French? Is it, Peter McKay is getting torpedoed over the weekend for his, his lack of proficiency, I suppose, in the French language. Uh, how bad is it? Um, his French or the reaction? Well, the reaction, <laughs> we know the reaction was bad, but you're uh, a Francophone. How bad is I, French? I've, I've spoken to Mr. McKay last Friday uh, after record conversation, but it was all in French, and I wanted to measure the quality of his French, and I can say that it's fine. He's going to do okay. Um, um, I have no problem talking to him about policies or the weather with him. So it was fluid, it was logical, his syntax was fine, some errors here and there, but I mean, I would compare it to uh, Jack Layton's French when he uh, really became a more national figure in 2004. 
And I think there is progress to be made, but there's no problem with Mr. McKay. And, and, and by the way, um, he's got time to uh, perfect his French. And he got yeah. one more uh, support today from a Quebec MP, despite the harsh reaction from some newspapers in Quebec, you know, uh, uh, saying good luck, Mr. in English, in the headline in, in the French newspaper. Uh, the MP is Bernard Genereux. He supports him, says he's close to his ideas, and he's uh, confident that Does that raise a question, though, John? I think you, you and I touched on a little earlier before we got on the air. For a guy who's been around federal politics for that long, why isn't his French better? Right. I mean, I think that uh, it, I mean, he said to me that, uh, uh, yeah, I've been in a unilingual English organization for four years in the private sector. Uh, I need to get back to where I was in 2015. And I said, you weren't that great in 2015. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, he came in, his, his entry music on... on uh, uh, Saturday, his launch was Born to Run, and he's basically been Born to Run, <laughs> and he must have known this day was coming for nigh on 20 years, and, and it just surprises me that he, yeah. he was, I mean, I know, I remember he went to, to language school in 2006-07. But yeah. to his defense, the speech that was written in French for him was complicated. Even I would have problems reciting what he had to say, uh, reading a, a teleprompter. So, I, you know, I'll give him a second chance to uh, prove himself on this front because the way the phrases were written, it was like reading Molière. But, but I just, <laughs> I, I just got to remind JD, who asked Belinda Stronach the question in 2005, yeah. I believe, yeah. uh, about her ambitions for the Liberal leadership. And she... He asked her in like French. In French. Sorry, and she looked like a deer in the headlights and said, could you repeat the question in English? which he proceeded not to do, and he walked away, which was very rude. Yeah. And, uh, well, we're giving but her hopes were dashed yeah. right there and then. Yeah, he so can walk away now because we're out of time. See my power? But if, <laughs> but if that happened to McKay, then he's going to be in trouble too. À la prochaine, mes amis. <laughs> Take care. See you later. Well, that's all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC. We are the Cable Public Affairs Channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching.